0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the second episode of Season 2 of The Audacity Project. In this season, we're very proud to bring to you stories from powerhouse leaders and change makers and doers from around the world to help answer why feminist equity and inclusivity isn't the norm yet in the 21st century. Along with that, we also bring to you some vulnerable and audacious stories and insights you'll need to fight this good fight against patriarchy at the workplace. But before we proceed, please, please remember that patriarchy affects us all regardless of our gender. So this podcast isn't targeted for or set to criticize any particular gender. We'd love for all men out there to be our allies. With that, let's dive into today's episode. In today's conversation of the Audacity Project, we have with us Ms. Nithina Draja, the head legal counsel of Bill of Morris at Melbourne. She's an absolutely beautiful powerhouse of a woman who leads through authenticity and kindness. She's a mother of two and she isn't ever afraid to show her vulnerable self to the world. And if you've been paying attention to her writing and public interaction correctly, you'd know that this introduction doesn't do justice to who she is as a person or what she stands for. And I don't think there could be a better person to turn to for a feminist evaluation of the corporate workplace. And that is what today's episode is all about. You're listening to the second episode of season two of the Audacity Project. This is Shweta Meenal. Let's dive right in. So hi, Nithi. Thank you so much for being with the Audacity Project today. I know how packed your schedule is. I also know you just got off a meeting. Um, so thank you so much. It's such an honor to have you with us. No, thanks,
1: Shweta. It's lovely to be here with you.
0: Beautiful. So, before I dive into today's conversation, I want to give our listeners a quick story behind how we met. Nithi and I are a part of this legal community called the Law Ninjas that brings together law students, graduates, and professionals from all around the world. So Nithya and I actually met on LinkedIn, and I was just so positively overwhelmed by how raw and honest she is about her personal life and mental health on a networking platform that is particularly created to enable one talk up their professional life, right? So I just love how your feed is filled with talk about work-life balance and children and kindness and empathy as priority in a world where lawyers we are perceived as people with a single-minded immersion in our professional roles. And it is as if we cannot have an identity beyond that and 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 it applies more sort of women who want to make it so it's just all the stuff from us on the need to create an inclusive and diverse workspace can often be dismissed and it can create a certain impression of us as vulnerable or problematic or as people that are not cut out for leadership roles so um may I ask what inspired you to break past all of this? <sighs>
1: Big question. Um yeah, look it's um it's it's been a journey, I guess. You know, I think it's and it, it, it's I think it's only something that's happened for me in the last few years. I very much in the early part of my career followed, you know, the path that most lawyers go down, which is private practice and trying to, you know, make a name and a mark in private practice and be seen and be recognised, and along the way did what a lot of Australians do, which is uh, go to London for a bit and cut my teeth over there as well. And, you know, it was exactly as you said, you know, law, my work was my life, right, and everything else played second fiddle. And what I realized over time when I started to have started having to make sacrifices in my personal life was that it was becoming so all consuming that it was taking over any possibility of me actually having a life. Um, To the point where I think, you know, even when I started first uh, dating my husband, my now husband, he. he said to me, are you playing hard to get? You're never around, you know. And I was like, no, you know, to be honest, I'm not. I'm not actually playing a game here or anything. I literally am just working. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it was, it was all-consuming. It just took over my life. And I, you know, I'd, I'd always kind of wondered how uh, particularly private practice and being a mother in the future might, reconcile themselves because I knew I wanted to be a present mother but I also knew I wanted to have a career and I didn't want to give that up to be a mum either and so how is I going to achieve this balance and so eventually I moved in-house because I decided that the culture and lifestyle of private practice didn't suit me and moved in house and that was a lot better in terms of hours in terms of being able to plan my life and have a life and and all of that and I think you know as I became a mum and had kids and faced adversity along the way and some of the challenges as well that come with being a working mum I realized that you need to present as yourself at work you need to show up as who you are, not just what you do. And the more you're able to do that, the more you'll able you'll be able to lead people effectively and honestly and with trust. And so that is that that was me at work. And then last year, as the pandemic hit, it really shook me and made me realize that life is very short and unpredictable. And if you want to see change happen, you've gotta be that change, you know, as the saying goes, you know, so I realized that, what you know, I needed to do something more. And for me initially, that was about speaking up and talking about the things that I have experienced. And as I started talking, I realized I had far more to say than I thought I did. And, you know, the the minute you start putting pen to paper and you start reflecting on your life, you start thinking about all these things that are personal to you and your life story, but equally that so many other people can resonate with. And through doing that, you know, it's gone beyond even spoken word to taking action and getting involved with other people, collaborating with people to actually try and change things and have, you know, have a diff- make a difference in this world so that I can say in the years to come that, you know what, I, I did something to try and, you know, achieve these changes. Wow. Does that, does that help explain why? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, this favorite t-shirt
0: of mine reads, the answer is to help others. So every time I have an ethical dilemma, get really indecisive about what I want to do with my life. I keep coming back to this quote to remind myself that there are several ways to do good in this world and to call attention to issues that really, really matter. So as you tell me that you're doing this, so years from now, you can look back and tell yourself that you tried to make a difference uh, that's I love that. Um, And another very important thing that arises from your answer, at least to me personally, is when you talk about the importance of bringing your true, honest self to workplace um, and how that directly relates to how effective um, and empathetic uh, of a leader one can be, I couldn't help but quickly relate to something that I read a while ago. So Margaret Taunton, a feminist legal scholar in Australia and a lawyer at the Supreme Court of New South Wales, she writes that the way feminine is constructed in the Western intellectual community, it directly works against women. Mm. And that even in the 21st century, biological determinism, it puts a cap on who and and what women can and cannot be based on no scientific reasons whatsoever and completely characterized by regressive patriarchal notions. and, And it works against women even harsher in the corporate world, right? So, to a certain extent, we've always had to work harder, present a very tough exterior to be taken seriously or to be heard. So it takes a certain courage in this system to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. to, to make some noise and call attention about things that are very intrinsic to one's gender and and so on. So have you felt scared before about uh, I, I mean, do you at all relate to this?
1: I did initially, and when I first uh, post, when, when I posted what was probably the most personal story for me, which was my story of my pregnancy losses, I sat there for a long time before I shared them, wondering if I was doing the right thing and if it was too much and what people would think and what they would say, including people at work. And it, it took me quite a while to build up the courage to to post it, Uh, and in in the end it was really this deep-rooted belief that I had within me that I needed to tell this story that pushed me to press that post button and it was still very scary even even after I'd pressed post and I think yes I think you know you do have this fear particularly as a woman and I think some men have it too because I think you know there are men out there equally that are also you know vulnerable and I guess, you know, have this, uh, you know, in quotation marks, feminine energy as well, you know, or a a balance of um, energy that weighs towards feminine versus masculine because everyone has a mix of both. Um, And I think sometimes you do worry, you know, am I being too, quotation marks, soft? Am I being assertive enough, you know? Am I standing up for myself enough, you know? And and these are some of the things that I think as women throughout our career, because people are trying to help us step up to that next level, they tell us you need to be more assertive, you need to stand your ground, you need to, you know, step forward. And it can be helpful, but sometimes it can also be counterproductive, as you said so eloquently before. So it's it's challenging. But yes, I think we all have these feelings of, you know, how much is too much? How much is too little? And it's a hard, hard line to try and traverse.
0: 100%. Um, I mean, you're right. I mean, advice, even if it comes from a place of honest intentions, it can get overwhelming and counterproductive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because... The struggle to find the perfect balance of energies is to bring to work is something that people of all genders face and it shouldn't ever be characterized as something that's innate to just women, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, there's there, there are a series of books that go by the title, Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office with a sequel titled Nice Girls Still Don't Get the Corner Office that was released somewhere around um, late 2014 mm. with a bunch of... Um, Counterproductive, regressive advice um, characterizing struggles that are common to people of all genders is something that only women go through. Um, and not to give a really bad review for the book, but I thought uh, it was really discouraging women from speaking up and um, encouraging them to bring a more conventional, conventionally masculine energy uh, to work. Right? Um, in fact, it's sort of like it has a specific. Um, chapter that reads hey don't play the gender card unless you've exhausted every other avenue even if you're being discriminated on account of your gender and a bunch of really really problematic things in a world where people are actually fighting to call attention to experiences that are very personal to them on account of their gender and and especially in times where we're trying to make noise, we're trying to bring changes in laws and policy, so on and so forth. Advice like this can can really just pull us back by several years. Mm. And, um, and I remember reading your LinkedIn posts and your blog article about your pregnancy loss, and I remember thinking, "Wow, how powerful!" And I say this because while we still do live in a pro- live in a progressive world, there's there's so much stigma that attaches to um, what a woman can and cannot share about her personal life and her body on a public Mm. forum. But the truth is, as we allow more and more women to come forward, they realize that such experiences are more common than it's perceived to be. And amidst this social stigma and this extremely uninformed blame game and the mental health concerns that go completely overlooked, um, people don't realize that when women come forward and share such stories, it has the power to inform and shape culture and at, at its best, shape law and policymaking, changing the very legal architecture that dictates most personal aspects of our lives. So in that aspect, I thought that your article was a very, very important political statement. Um, so given how deeply personal that is, thank you so much for sharing that and for talking about it with me in today's conversation. More power to unity.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. So if I take it step by step, so the, the first part of what you talked about around, uh, you know, not getting the corner office, right, and this idea that a, a woman who seeks to become a leader in an organisation needs to become effectively more masculine in her approach is, in my mind, a very dangerous uh, dangerous uh, concept. I think there are a few things here. I think one is um, the the way that workforces are designed still today. you know workforces are designed around the idea of a white middle-aged man who has a wife at home who looks after the two kids and dog and he goes traveling around the world with his briefcase whilst his wife is at home cleaning cooking and raising the kids right That's the that's the basis upon which traditional workforces have been based. And the reality has shifted so dramatically over the last 40 years, I would say, that the workplace, I guess, system hasn't caught up. So we now have so many dual income families. We now have single, um, you know, single mother families, for example, or even single father. Uh, We have uh, families where the woman may be the highest um, earning person Mm, in the household, you know, maybe the breadwinner in some cases. And so the, the reality of the workplace really hasn't caught up to this. We still expect that in order for a person to progress to the next step, uh, you need to put in 150%, which means you need to be at the at your workplace all the time. You, you know, it encourages things like presenteeism uh, and all of those sort of concepts. So I think that's problematic in itself, and I think there are some systemic issues there that workplaces need to start unpacking and really start seeing how can we overcome these historic systemic barriers to women progressing through these organisations, right? So that's that's number one. Now, the idea that you need to embrace a more masculine side in order to progress is also a dangerous one, I think. And I think in recent times with the pandemic, we've seen just how important it is for leaders to be vulnerable, for leaders to step up and say, I'm not okay, for uh, leaders to, uh, you know, transparent with their teams and to have these open conversations about mental health because mental health is Mm -hmm. becoming an epidemic at the moment it's very real and I think you know people around the world are having to start to pay attention to that now and so Mm -hmm. you can't just lead from a place of masculinity anymore in order to enter those conversations and to have effective conversations with people, you need to embrace femininity, you know, in terms of energy. And I'm only talking about energy here, you know, and there's a separate argument that could be, you know, uh, or sec- separate topic, I guess, that could be discussed in relation to whether or not these labels are appropriate and these labels in themselves do damage, right. To the whole conversation, you know, Oh, absolutely. Um, we all have these energies, as I said before, it's how you balance the energies that's important. And so I think in today's world, you, you need to have people that can embrace both sides of their energy uh, in order to progress. You know, you see it with world leaders like Jacinta Ardern, right, in New Zealand. She leads from a place of both energies. And you can see that in the way she presents herself So I think it's a falsehood to state that a woman who doesn't step into the masculine side of herself can't succeed in a workforce. You know, sometimes I think these sort of issues come down to, you know, is she the only woman, only person that's embracing that side of herself or themselves? Is everyone else focused on the other side, right? So is she a lone wolf? You know, and when you're a lone wolf trying to lead from this place and everyone else is over here leading from a completely different place, how much impact are you necessarily going to have, right? And this is where diversity becomes important. This is why part of the narrative uh, that's important at the moment is getting women and not just women but getting diverse people, you know, people of different sexual orientation, people Um, who are non-binary, you know, all of these people, people of colour, you know, you need to get different voices into these rooms because when you have different voices in these rooms, that's when people can lead from their own authentic self. When you have one person that is the token diverse person in the room, in a room full of 10 other people, it becomes difficult to lead from a place of authenticity. Because your voice gets drowned out. Exactly.
0: Well said, Nithi. And and you are right. I mean, it's not about token diversity, where you hire a few people of color, a few people of various genders and sexuality, and you advertise yourself as the most inclusive or diverse firm and earn those publicity points, right? Because that's not doing any good. It is actually about creating a culture where diversity and inclusivity are, in it's very ethos and seeing what it does for the overall well-being of the firm and. That's that's very important, you're right. Uh, and now that we're on the conversation of diversity, there's a very important question that I wanted to ask you. So do you think that we have sufficient laws in place that help promote diversity in that, I mean, we need laws that acknowledge the biological differences that exist between various genders, but creates um, an equitable level playing field for all. And a very basic tool in that direction, or one amongst several others, one amongst many is maternity leaves, right? Um, do you think corporate I mean, in addition to maternity laws that several countries do or do not have, what is also important is that the corporate spaces actually implement them in an equitable way. Um, so do you think women these days have the option to take off, um, go nurse their babies for a year without the anxiety that when they do return, they will have they will feel like they've lost all their progress and they will have to um they'll have to earn all of their colleagues trust again and feel like they're starting from scratch again do you think that anxiety exists even today yeah
1: i i think it's really complicated i think i think it's not um, it's something that work for, workplaces i think are starting to try and unpack and try and understand and change but the change has been very slow and you know you even look at some of the language that is still used in policies around maternity leave, you know, primary caregiver, you know, these sort of constructs, the language that we use in policies can in and of itself be detrimental when it comes to gender equity debates, you know, in broader society because you're automatically then making the assumption that one of the two parents is the primary caregiver and the other one just takes part every now and again. You know, and so that in itself is is problematic from my perspective. I think we need to acknowledge that there are, in many circumstances, not in all, but in many there are two caregivers, right? And how do you facilitate an environment, a societal environment, in which men are able to and encouraged to, right, not just able to but encouraged to, partake to the same level in the caregiving equation correct right so you know conversations around flexibility become important there you know to what degree are men who ask for flexible arrangements given flexible arrangements and how are they perceived you know because i think historically there's been a lot of stigma attached to men asking for those sort of arrangements so even if a father wants to take part in their child's life in those early years where you really start, I guess, developing some of these habits around who is doing what in the house and with the kids and everything else, you know, there's so much stigma. It becomes difficult for that father to actually have that opportunity to do that without seriously impacting their own career. Right, right. And I think from a female perspective, it is... It is hard. You know, you do have that fear, I think, when you're on maternity leave around, you know, what will things be like when I return? And it was interesting because when I first went on maternity leave, I didn't really think too much about my return to work. Other than that, I wanted to come back flexibly initially but return to full-time work soon thereafter. And I hadn't really thought through how difficult it would be coming back. And when I went back to work, I realised The people that had been my supporters had moved on to other parts of the organization. And so all of a sudden you're starting from scratch again because you've been absent from the organization for a period of time. And so I think it can be incredibly challenging to manage that. I think it can be incredibly challenging to manage some of the perceptions that go along with working reduced hours you know, what that means. Are you committed to your job? Are you committed to succeeding? Are you ambitious? You know, and then there are assumptions made as well on the other side, right, that you're a mum. You've just become a mum. You must want to spend time at home and look after the kids, right? Well, that's not every woman's story either, you know, and particularly nowadays when actually, as I said before, there are so many women who might be the primary breadwinner in a household, it is important. It is more important than ever to recognize that every woman's story is different. Some women will want to will want to take a back seat as far as their career is concerned. You know, they'll 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 want to focus on raising their family. Other women want to get straight back into work and not lo- have lost anything by virtue of being on leave. So I, I think there's a piece there for how do we educate managers and how does how do workforces, workplaces deal with these issues around maternity leave and return to work with sensitivity, right? And And part of this, and I say this in a lot of contexts, is about listening, you know, not making assumptions. And it works, it's the same for so many issues. You know, it's the same for any conversation that we have around Uh, diversity and inclusion, you need to listen. You need to ask the person, what do they want? Listen to their response and then go from there. You know, the minute people start making assumptions, that's when things start going wrong. So that, that for me is pretty critical. And as far as pregnancy loss itself is concerned, I think this is a new area for workplaces to deal with. It's not a new area for You know, society at large. I mean, pregnancy losses have been part of society since, you know, forever. But it's not something that workplaces have ever overtly acknowledged or dealt with. And yet, there are so many people, you know, on a yearly, on a daily basis that have miscarriages, that have pregnancy losses. And the reality is it impacts often two people, you know. Again, not just the woman, but it also impacts the man, right? And we don't have policies in place that allow these people to deal with the grief and the loss that they've just suffered. And I think often people fall back on, well, it was only six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks old. It wasn't a baby yet or it wasn't ever viable, or you can try again. But the reality of the situation is that what you're grieving is not just that um, fetus that was inside of you. What you're grieving is the hopes, the dreams, the, the plans that you'd started making inside your head. Right? You're dreaming that future that you'd dreamt for this uh, child. And that's where I think people often fail to recognize that getting over something like that takes longer than a day or two of sick leave, you know, and, you know, I mean, we could go on about this topic, you know, you then have, uh, you know, menstruation, you have um, endo, you know, all these issues that affect uh, women's bodies and can affect them quite severely. And yet, because society tells us these are taboo topics to talk about you don't and then you suffer in silence or you take sick leave to deal with things that you know happen potentially on a monthly basis you know and and quite severe for for many women but little understood by society or workplaces at large
0: thank you so much for sharing that with me today Niti and um i really hope you're okay now um, and i also hope that some of our listeners felt themselves represented and heard and realized that, that they're not alone in this emotional roller coaster that they're on and you're right it is very important to break through such taboos and present our gender truths forward because culture is putative it's taught it's learned and it will take a lot of work to unlearn um the inherent bias and the misogyny that we've all been subjected to it's going to take a lot of work and that is why these conversations are extremely extremely important and and it is the lack thereof that is making us just do with sick leaves which to say the least doesn't even acknowledge the biological differences that are inherent therein, right, and, and and you're right about the language and the phraseology of statutes and legislations and, and policies because I remember reading something about Australia's recently proposed legislation that adds miscarriage to the compassionate and bereavement leave entitlement granting only two days' leaves. For mothers to get back to work and 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 every journal article in and newspaper which I reported this wrote about how this was a validation of a parent's grief and i'm i was confused and i remember thinking since when did a parent require anybody's validation of their grief and and is this couple days a measure of the so validated grief how how do you welcome this proposal Niti and I also wanted to add that I mean just because a country has feminist legislation on paper doesn't mean that that is the actual truth because for example India was one of the very first countries to grant six weeks of paid leave um, for mother mothers who are going through pregnancy loss, but that is not how it is actually implemented because if I've I've read a lot of um, stories about women actually asking for leaves on account of pregnancy loss and being urged by their HR to get to work ASAP. And this shows that it's very important to see such acts to the point of implementation, or or it's just progressive on paper and it doesn't help anyone. And all of this takes me Mm. to a whole new conversation, a whole new issue, a whole new debate, rather, that um, do you think that if all genders come together, throw our hands up and say, hey, this isn't enough and we need more, what we're getting right now isn't even an acknowledgement of our differences to start with, Do you think they'll stand in the way of pay parity?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really challenging conversation, this one. It's, it's mm-hmm. you yeah. know, it's hard. I mean, I think on the, on the miscarriage point and on the two days of leave, two days is never going to be enough to grieve a pregnancy loss in the same way that two days of compassionate leave for the death of a loved one is never going to be enough to grieve the death of a loved one either, right? I think the important thing with... Um, the legislative change is not so much the validation point, but the fact that by giving or by separating this out into a separate head of leave, it it one says. We acknowledge that pregnancy loss is something that is not a sickness. Right. And is something that you need time to grieve and that we as workplaces need to acknowledge and recognize mm-hmm. explicitly. That's number one yeah. for me. Number two is it opens the door to a conversation. Right. Part of the problem with pregnancy loss, unlike many other things, is that it it, it exists in a cone of silence during that first trimester because people are so concerned about the couple that, or the mother is so concerned about losing the baby and having to untell people that you've told that you're pregnant that you are silent about it, right? And that's good in one sense because it helps protect you from that telling and untelling. But on the other hand, the problem with the cone of silence is that if something d- then does happen, no one knows right and then you live through the grief in silence and you pretend to be okay at work because you feel you have no choice but to pretend that nothing has happened because for eight nine weeks whatever it was you were pretending that you were exactly the same person you were before that time right and so this is this is the problem history, you know at the moment I think and I think the thing that this leave the introduction of this leave does is it allows women and men because I think it applies to men as well to raise their hand and to say this happened to me right and I think facilitating that conversation is important because it was one of the things that surprised me most when I had my losses was the fact that so many other women I knew had had losses too and I was like I'm good friends with you, you know, why don't I know this? Why have you never told me this, right? Um, And, you know, the first time I had my first pregnancy loss, I'd already had a child, so I'd been through pregnancy, I'd been through childbirth, you know, it wasn't as if any of this was a completely new topic of conversation, but I still didn't know all these stories, right? And so I think the, the introduction of the leave does that it starts the conversation now that's all it does it allows the start of the conversation you know so what's the next step from here the next step is for workplaces to really start understanding how they need to have these conversations managers need to understand how they need to hold space for people that are going through this in the same way that you know nowadays we're talking about mental health more broadly, so much more because of the pandemic, managers need to get better at having these conversations, you know, not shying away from the difficult conversations because they are difficult conversations. Having someone come up to you and say, I am not okay right now. I have just lost a baby is hard to respond to. As a manager, it's not an easy conversation to have. But we need to get better as a society at having these conversations because as we live through turbulent times at the moment with the pandemic and everything else, these conversations are multiplying. And so we need to understand how to hold space. And I come back to listening. I come back to things like silence. And I come back to things like physical proximity, to the extent you can, obviously, with COVID world but um, you know these things are often more important than the words that you say right and then it's well what does this person need in the coming weeks some people that are grieving want to throw themselves into work because work is a distraction so immediately rushing to give people leave and say we'll take time off may not be the right solution for that person right? For others, they might want more time off. They may say, do you know what? I can't focus. I have no, my concentration levels aren't there. I'm making mistakes because I'm just so preoccupied with everything else that is going on. And, you know, I think the one thing that we often forget with things like pregnancy loss for women is that there is a physical component as well. You've been pregnant for eight weeks, so you have to get unpregnant. you know? Your body has to readjust to the fact that you're no longer pregnant, you know, and you can often feel um, a great deal of um, resentment towards your own body. You know, you can then start having body image issues because you feel big, you know, and uncomfortable and you're no longer pregnant, but you feel you look pregnant. So there are all these things that, you know, compound. And I think this is where the education And the understanding and the training becomes really important. So the leave is only the first step. So that was the first part of your question. Now, the second part of your question, I can't quite remember. You're going to have to repeat to me because I went off on my own tangent there
0: (laughs) no no Uh, no we're having a very important conversation here you're you're talking about really important things so the second half of my question was whether this would stand in the way of us achieving pay parity if we ah yes
1: yeah Mm -hmm. yes 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 ah that's hard um (laughs) it's really tricky because um, (laughs) oh god i know i know you know when you when you're absent from workplaces you're absent from people's minds, you're absent from their consideration when it comes to promotions and all sorts of things, right? So I think, yes, it, it, it can. And I think part of the issue here is also around um, other governmental systems as well, like superannuation, for example, in Australia or pension uh, schemes or funds elsewhere. You know, To what extent does a woman who say, on maternity leave or on bereavement leave... Um, that's potentially extended bereavement leave continue to earn superannuation you know because in Australia at the very least I think this is one of the biggest problems that we face with maternity leave is that women might be away for you know a year sometimes up to two and that during that period they're not earning super and so Automatically, when you look at a woman then who's potentially in her 30s versus a man at the same age and same level in an organization, the amount that they're earning and the amount that they will have at the by the time they retire oh God. Yeah. starts to wide, like the gap starts to widen, right? And this is, you know, superannuation, you know, is is part of the problem. So I think there's something there, you know, pay equity in terms of standing up and demanding more. It's, it's really challenging like I, I don't really even have an answer you know because I think it is
0: oh God, I can tell from the look on your face yeah
1: it's a double it's a double-edged sword it's a double-edged sword and I think you know this is where we need to have more and more of these conversations where you openly debate mm-hmm. right the, the pros and cons and you go okay we need a world with gender equity we think many many of us think some of us don't oh well think, but many think um and you know what does that then look like because the counter argument for many other people who don't believe in gender equity is well if you choose to go off and have a baby that's your choice wow. you know and this is the argument that's often raised and I'm like do you know often that's the choice of two people not just the choice of one person, you know, takes yeah. two to have a baby most of the time, not uh, yeah. time. But most of the time takes two, right? Does it impact the other partner? No. You know, so <sighs> it's, yeah, it's it's a challenging conversation. And I think this is the thing with pay equity, right? You know, you're at the same level in an organisation, right? Because this is what we're talking about when we talk about pay equity. You're in the same job doing the same thing. You should be paid the same. yeah. No, know, doesn't matter if you've taken a leave of maternity leave before. Yeah. Like, yeah. It shouldn't make a difference, right? But sometimes what can happen is perceptions come in the way, get in the way. You know, you're on maternity leave. Oh, you know, she took a bit of a back step in her career for a little while, you know, and then you come back and then you build yourself up again. But you're at the same level that this other person is at, but because you had this dip or this period of absence, you've had to prove yourself more to get back up here, and so potentially your pay has not increased to the same level. That's not true everywhere, but, you know, and I'm generalising, right, but, you know, I think this is the difficulty with some of these conversations. There are so many. No, no, costs. no, I don't think
0: you are generalising, or even if you are, I don't think that's a problem, because the issue is that such such things are systematic, They are structurally propagated. I'm I'm glad you spoke about these things. And I'm also glad, I mean, when when you said that people look at you and say, oh, it's a choice you make. I mean, given the age of social media and given the very, very fierce feminist discourse, feminist revolution that goes on all around us, you should be very adamant and very regressive in your thoughts to believe that to, to not even understand the basics of feminist equity. Ah, oh, yes. I, I, I mean, I remember having a conversation with one of my friends recently who said that if he were to invest in a business and if he were to have employees who would take off and then expect to be compensated nevertheless, even on the days that they don't do work, then he would rather hire all male employees instead and just choose to be more productive or efficient because he's losing money. I mean all of that goes goes on to say that you're not really paying attention you're not really listening to what's going on and you don't really understand the power of inclusivity and power of creating diverse environments and which is why it's very very important to not have the conversation that we're having right now in in just corporate levels but that it's important to have it even in the smallest social circles to make them dinner dining table conversations Mm. or Mm. uh, and whatnot to make sure that such ideas really percolated or, or or really instilled in every level yes. of the society to actually bring about a tangible change.
1: No, I I agree with you completely. I think treating these issues as women's issues is fundamentally wrong. These issues are not women's issues, these are societal issues that affect families and affect society at large. And and you're right, these conversations need to start very early on, and um, it, it's something, you know, I'm very conscious of with, you know, both a daughter and a son who is yet too little to have any of these conversations, but in due course. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think, um, you know, transparency and discussion around these things is, is, is critical, and we need to pull each other up. We need to pull others up when, you know, when people do make these assumptions that can be quite false Um, and and we need to promote dialogue on what is, you know, the right thing for people. You know, if you're in a family, say, if you're the partner of a woman that's gone on maternity leave and you yourself can't work for whatever reason, you know, it's not just a woman's issue, is it, Right. You know, it's 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 the family's issue. And this is the thing that's important to understand that they these issues don't just impact a woman. You know, they impact the kids as well. You know, how do the kids grow up? You know, what, what is their lifestyle like? What is what are their opportunities like as a result of the impact of the inequities then that potentially a woman has faced in her life? But you know, it's it's sad. I think when um, when people think the way that um, you know your friend or colleague um, did, I think it's it's unfortunate because there is much to be gained from you know having a a woman go off on say a maternity leave or parental leave, as we should call it, rather than maternity leave. Um, and then come back you know you learn so much through parenting and that is invaluable I know for me I look back at the time pre having my first child and post and I'm like I'm so much more productive now than I ever was pre-children because I don't procrastinate as much I don't waste time as much I get on with what I need to do because I know my time is finite and I know I've got other things that I need to be doing and other little people to be looking after at different times of the day, you know. And so you, you learn how to prioritize. You learn how to be productive. You, and, you know, if you've been treated right, you're going to be one of the most engaged employees in that workplace, right, because it, it engenders loyalty. Um, and loyalty and engagement are what any workplace needs in order to drive results. Wow. That... That
0: was beautiful, Nithi. Thank you so much. I think there's a lot. There's so much to take away from today's conversation. Starting from the importance and the power of listening, to the importance of leading from a place of authenticity and vulnerability and kindness, and how that creates an inclusive and diverse environment, which in turn forges and encourages people to be more loyal and and remain committed to their work. and And this whole concept of how a feminist corporate workplace directly relates to the efficiency and production. Productivity at work is so, so path-breaking. And I, and I hope everybody listens to this conversation and understands the importance of, of and the power of diversity and inclusivity, right? Yeah. Um, it was so cathartic, personally. And um, thank you for being extremely beautiful and and, and drawing from your personal stories and, and for all the valuable lessons and insights um, into what true feminist equity will look like. I mean, there's so much to unpack. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's a, it's
1: a big, it's a big topic. Right.
0: <laughs> and it branches into several other conversations as well. I mean, how do you put an end to it?
1: <laughs> but thank you so much. No worries. No worries at all. Thank you for having me, Shweta.
0: Take care. Have a
1: great week ahead. Bye-bye. Bye. If you like this episode and want to check out more of who we are or what we
0: do, then please don't forget to visit our website, which is www.theaudacityproject.net. Until next time, take care. See you. Bye-bye.